A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. I am determined to prove that good work can be valued and can actually help move organizations forward to make a larger impact. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Jesse McGuire. Jesse is a brand builder, design advocate, and the managing director at Thought Matter, a branding and design agency committed to artful, innovative design for clients who are driving change across diverse sectors, from arts and culture to health and economic development. She's worked on initiatives in support of socially progressive causes, such as March for Our Lives, Girls Right Now, and the Joyful Heart Foundation. And she has spearheaded projects and campaigns like the production and free distribution of posters for the 2017 Women's March, the redesign of the unabridged U.S. Constitution for modern readers, and For the People, a documentary series that highlights U.S. citizens who are creatively exercising their constitutional rights during this defining year for democracy. I just want to say that that docuseries is very well done and super interesting and relevant in this moment. There are six episodes so far, and you can view them right now at ForThePeopleProject.org. So head there as soon as you're done listening. Here's Jesse. My name is Jesse McGuire. I am in New York City. I live in Brooklyn. I am currently the managing director at a branding and design studio called Thought Matter. 
at Thought Matter. We're about five years old and I've been with our founder. We're founder led. I've been with our founder for about four years. Uh, and over the past four years, having different conversations with him about what is branding, what is design, what is branding and design in as we move into the third decade of the 21st century. We're constantly having conversations about what does the industry look like today and what does it need? Like why, why start a branding and design studio uh, right now? And one of the things that we always talk about is what does it mean to do purpose-driven work? What does it mean to do work that we believe in? What does it mean to use creativity for something that's larger than ourselves? We started talking about this concept of work worth doing. And for me, over the last couple of years, helping to define what is work worth doing uh, is why I wake up every day, is why I come to the studio every day, and why I really have thought critically about how you build a studio of, of creative individuals uh, rallying around uh, work worth doing. I am so excited to get more into that in granular detail. But before we get all the way up to Thought Matter, we've got to understand how Jesse McGuire got to be Jesse McGuire. Sure. So before Jesse McGuire was Jesse McGuire, I was Jesse Rosetnik. And I grew up upstate New York uh, in a city called Schenectady outside of Albany. I grew up um, with a single mother. She was a, a public school teacher for 40 years, raised me to believe that I could do anything that I put my mind to um, with a little bit of gumption. The bigger piece of my biography, if you will, that I have mm-hmm. learned later in life is a, is a large piece of who I am, but I feel like I never talked about is the fact that I was adopted. Uh, So I was born in El Salvador, which is in Central America. Growing up in upstate New York, nobody ever knew what El Salvador was. It was never hidden from me. My mother always talked about it. But it was a very foreign-sounding country that we never really talked about. What I think is interesting right now and fortunate and unfortunate Uh, the current uh, administration. A lot of people now know El Salvador. Uh, It was uh, one of the, we'll call it the the OG shithouse countries or shithole countries that uh, Trump talked about uh, three years ago. And it was fascinating because so many people were like, Jesse, aren't you from El Salvador? Like, what is this? Why is it in the news? It's actually made me think more critically about the fact that I was born in El Salvador in the 80s. Uh, At the time, it was uh, the country was going through a civil war. In many ways, my mother didn't choose El Salvador. I would say El Salvador chose her. Uh, She was in her late 30s. And she knew she wanted children, but she wasn't married. And she wanted to pursue uh, adoption. I guess this was probably like the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and there were not many countries that would adopt to single parents. Uh, it was very much religious-based adoption agencies. And so they didn't believe that single women should adopt like single parent households. When my mother really pursued it and said, I will not give up hope because I know that I can be uh, an amazing mother. And I know that there's children out there who need homes. Uh, There were three countries uh, that were willing to adopt to single parents and El Salvador being one of them. And it took my mom about two years to actually get me. I came over when I was 20 months old she, again, was was determined to uh, raise me and, again, talk about the fact that I was chosen uh, and that she wanted the, the world for me. 
but that's been wow. more of, um, like I said, later in, in my in my life that I've I've realized how much that shaped who I am. And I don't think it's the fact that I was adopted is what shaped me. I think it's the fact that my mother constantly talked about it. The fact that she was a single mom. I always like to say to her that she is the most wholehearted feminist that I know. And she kind of likes that. Oh. Like, the label feminist and, and kind of doesn't <laughs> depends on the day, uh, but really showed me that women can do anything when they put their their minds to it. I love that your mom is a wholehearted feminist. That's such a wonderful story. What is your connection to El Salvador now? When I was 16, my mom very much wanted to, to make sure that I went back to the country and if I had any questions and gave me the option to look for any family and anything I want to do. And this was before, I feel like now everyone talks about 23andMe and all these different uh, services. So this was literally like, let's get a plane ticket and go search the country. So I was able to do that for a few weeks uh, when I was 16. It was amazing. And I actually didn't pursue looking for any family or, or connections. I just wanted to understand more about the country. So we went to I think, four different cities and it was amazing. For me, I've always been interested in meeting people who are from the country who actually have a, a cultural connection to the country. Whenever I, you know, I find out somebody's from El Salvador, I, I, I want to know more about their experience and what they know about the country. For many years, there wasn't much of a conversation, but I now have two kids. I have a, a two-year-old and a six-year-old. Um, and it's interesting what, uh, especially what comes out of the six-year-old's mouth, because he very much is like, well, mommy, you're adopted and you're from this country called El Salvador. And like, why aren't we going there? And what do I, how can I know more about it? So it has forced me to to talk about it. And then, as I was saying before, it's now so much in the zeitgeist uh-huh. uh, because people are talking about El Salvador, both positively and very negatively. I mean, you're, you're seeing all these conversations about how there's caravans of gangs and, you know, the country is so poor and they're just trying to, you know, send their criminals to the, the United States. And so uh, it has forced me to, to think more about it. And I feel like over the next few years, I probably will do more exploring on my own uh, as to what what that means for both me and my children. But that trip to El Salvador when you were 16 must have been kind of a big deal. Did it shape you in a meaningful way? And what else was going on in your American life at that time? It really did. Um, I, at that time, I was in high school, and I wasn't actually quite sure what I wanted to pursue and what I wanted to do. I knew my mother always said I was going to go to college, but I didn't know in what capacity. And I very, I loved uh, art. I was always a part of uh, the art classes in my, in my high school, but I never thought like, oh, I could definitely pursue that. And I remember saying to my mother, like my art teacher said, I should, I should think about what I should do in art. And she was like, absolutely. She's like, you should be looking at art schools and you should be thinking about what you want to do, which was actually the complete opposite conversation that most of the students in my art classes were having with their parents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So when I was in, I think it was my junior year, and there was a um, a boy who was one year older than me, and he was super talented, and he was always drawing, and everyone always talked about how I really needed to get to know him because he was going to apply to RISD, and at the time it was like RISD was the you know the, the best best art school that there was, and so I actually got to know him, and he would like show me his portfolio and how he was going to apply to RISD, and he would always tell me that his parents were not necessarily like into the arts, but they were like, he was. And so we would talk about art school all the time. Turns out he actually is one of the co-founders of Airbnb. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, well, I probably should have kept in touch with that guy. Um, So I I, I can't, I forgot uh, his name right now, but. um, Is it Brian Chesky or Joe Gabbia? 
Brian okay. Chesky. Yes, it was Brian <laughs> Chesky. So Brian and I would always have these conversations about art school and like what what it could do. And we would talk about student loans and like why people would pursue the arts and that it wasn't really a career. And yeah, which I think is funny because he's now... <laughs> yeah, he sort of blew that starving artist myth out of the water, didn't he? <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. But what I think is interesting, because again, a lot of parents and my, my like my friend said, the parents would say you wouldn't want to pursue the arts. Like I think they even we talk about liberal arts degrees, and it was like you know you shouldn't pursue that. You want to do engineering. You want to do yeah, doctor, lawyer, engineering. But my mom, no, my mom very much was like you're going to go to art school, and like this is going to be great. And and my art teacher at the time um, kept saying I should apply for a two year college. So we, that's actually how I found out about Pratt, where I ended up going. They had a two year college in upstate New York, and he kept saying do the two year college and see if it's like worth it. And my mother was like, no, you're going for the four year degree. You're going down to Brooklyn, and so I applied to actually SVA Pratt. RISD, uh, Micah, uh, and my mother took me to all the open houses and the portfolio reviews and uh, really was like, this is what you're going to do. And when I got into SVA, I was over the moon. I was ready to go. I feel like my mom got me blankets and embroidered backpacks and I was ready for <laughs> SVA. Um, but it was the summer before I was ready to go. My mom was like, okay, we have to go down and go talk to their financial aid because something's like off and this and the other thing. And when we got to the financial aid office, they were like, we can't offer you this this merit scholarship or whatever, maybe. And I was crushed. And my mom's like, we're getting in a cab and we're going to Brooklyn and we're going to see what Pratt can offer us. And I remember like just crying all the way to Pratt. And when we got there, I think there was some merit scholarship and some other things that my mother got is from a parent plus loan. And so she's like, you're going to Pratt. And I remember saying, there's absolutely no way I'm not going to Pratt. I thought I was going to SBA, yada, yada, yada. But it turned out to be the best decision that I absolutely made. Fast forward into my resume. I did end up going to SVA, which always makes me happy. But um, my undergraduate was at Pratt and I got to uh, experience the Pratt campus in Brooklyn. And that's where I met my husband. Uh, Oh, man, that was fortuitous. Yes, very fortuitous. (laughs) I love your mom. She's such a hero of this story already. She's a a badass. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so advertising design is what you studied at Pratt. Did you feel connected to this? Is Was this sort of a, a practical compromise or where was your heart at this time? When I started at Pratt and both at SBA, I had applied to be a painting major. So I okay. was uh, going in as a painting major and at Pratt, they have foundation year. So I was with uh, a lot of the folks that were going to be in the fine arts department doing drawing and light color design and all the different foundational classes. And actually it was the first semester, we all had to meet with um, some sort of counselor or something that talked about, okay, here's what will happen in the next three years if you're a fine arts major. And they told me that I was going to have a studio by myself and it was going to be a studio that I had for like the, the next three years at Pratt. And I was like, I, I remember being like, I'm sorry, I'm going to be by myself. And they were like, it's going to be great as a, as a fine arts major. You'll have access to all the materials and you'll have this space that it'll be secluded. Uh huh. And I'm an only, so as I mentioned before, I'm an only child and my biggest fear is to be by myself. <laughs> I love being around people and having conversations. And I remember going back and saying, I can't be a painter. I can't have a studio by myself. What are my other options? And so the woman I talked to was like, well, actually, you could go into industrial design and, and learn about uh, making products. And at the time, everyone was obsessed with like sneaker design. So I was like, you can make sneakers. And I was like, I'm not really into sneakers. Uh, but then they were like, well, there's advertising, which is, I mean, uh, you're not really making anything. You're talking about it. And I was like, yes, sign me up. <laughs> 
I joined the ComD, ComD department, you know, after my, my freshman year. And that was definitely the best decision I made because it allowed me to think about creativity in a different way. It helped me realize that I, again, I love talking about what is creativity? What does it do? How does it impact business? How does it impact the way that we look at things? When I started in the comedy, that's actually when I met my husband. So it was my sophomore year. He was a junior and he was a painting major. Uh-huh. And I was like, wow, what does it feel like to be in a studio all by yourself? And he was like, <laughs> it's amazing. So I actually got, I feel like I got to live through him, uh, for his two years at Pratt of what it meant, what it was like to be a, a painting major. And it was good that I didn't go into the, the painting, <laughs> the painting <laughs> angle. And him and I would have all kinds of furious debates about like, what is real creativity? Is it? fine art and pursuing work that is reflective of who you are. He defines creativity as acting on impulse and it's all about him. Uh, And then I would talk about design and what creativity was and what it meant to uh, use creativity with a set of parameters. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that was the real sense of creativity. So... I sort of think of creativity as something that everybody's born with. It's sort of like a a built-in Swiss army knife in your pocket. And then it's how you use it that is a matter of expression or artistry or whatever. But creativity is the way you think about how you're going to use it, the way you plan on using it, your intention, essentially, to create something that doesn't exist and to take it from zero to becoming something. You've got to figure out how you're going to use this Swiss army knife in your pocket to make that happen. And expression is really important too. That's how we, that's how we wrangle the ineffable. But design parameters are also how we help solve complex challenges. Creativity is yes. my favorite subject in the world. Ah, me too. I actually, I, last night, my husband's name is Mike. Mike and I were like, putting the kids down and, and whatever. And then all of a sudden we got to this whole big conversation about creativity. Obviously, I was, I was talking about this podcast and we had this philosophical conversation of like, what is creativity? We both looked at each other like, yeah, that's what we live for. So it sounds like Pratt was a really monumental and wonderful experience. And then uh, you got some work experience and then went back to SVA. The last story, though, that I'll say at Pratt, which did help uh, really shape who I was when I graduated, was when I was a freshman, both knowing that I couldn't be a fine arts major and I needed to like be around people. I was also very interested in all the clubs that were happening at Pratt. Um, so there was all kinds of different affinity clubs. And as I mentioned before, I more recently have have thought about like what my, you know, we'll say visible identity, cultural identity is. But there were so many people who said you should go in and join the Hispanic Cultural Club. You should join these things. But I didn't identify that that would make sense. I don't speak Spanish and I didn't really, um, I didn't have much to say about being from El Salvador at the time. But I still felt like there was a group out there for me. And I was talking to this woman who was a, a part of what they called the National Sorority Interest Group. And I was like, what is a national sorority interest group? And they're like, well, there are sororities and fraternities on Pratt's campus, but there is no national sorority. There was a national fraternity, um, but there was no national sorority. Uh, So they're like, we're actually forming a group to interview all these uh, sororities to see who makes sense to come to Pratt and how we could actually found a chapter. And I was like, that sounds great. I don't know why I thought this was great, but I was like, this sounds great. I definitely want to be a part of it. 
We spent that my freshman year into the summer interviewing all these national sororities. And my sophomore year, we chose, and they chose us, uh, Theta Phi Alpha. And Theta Phi Alpha is a, is a national organization that was founded in uh, Michigan. They were excited to have uh, their first arts chapter. They were like, well, what does it mean to be an artist? And at the time, I think there were 10 of us. And we were, you know, we had uh, a woman from the Bronx, Puerto Rican and Dominican. We had a woman who, you it was from the Caribbean. We had me who I was like, no one had any clue how to define <laughs> me. We had women who were from, you know, the South, the everywhere. And we were just this like grouping of 10 people who had such diverse perspectives. And at the time, it wasn't like, how do we really foster this diversity? We were more just like, how do we foster a community of women that can raise other women up and support each other through this weird art school experience? Uh, and how do we learn leadership skills? And how do we actually talk to each other? I learned Robert's Rules of Order. I learned, uh, you know, again, how to be part of even a larger group on Pratt's campus. And that really helped to define my, you know, those next three years because we were, our charter was initiated in 2002 uh, and I graduated in 2005. And when I graduated, I realized that I love being a part of something bigger than myself and I love talking about it. Like I love talking about what it means to found something, what it means to keep something going, what it means to inspire people, what it means to really think through where something could go. And so when I graduated, I was like, I want to do more of that. I want to do more of bringing people together. But I also am a creative individual and I want to put out work into the world. So how can I combine those two things? I decided to go to London. I, I don't know. I thought it would be it'd be cool to, to, to go abroad. And I applied to Boston University. Uh, they had a, um, I think it was a master's in mass communications. And it was a three semester graduate program. And one of the semesters was going abroad to London. Uh, but it was at the end of the end of the year. And I wrote to whoever at BU when I got in and I said, can I actually do London first? And I feel like I, I quoted why that made sense. And, you know, I was I was coming out of um, leadership roles at Pratt. And so they allowed me to do that. So I spent uh, 16 weeks in London uh, working in different advertising agencies there. I realized this is what I want to do. I want to just like talk, talk about design. Um, then reality hit and I came back to Brooklyn, I guess at the time. And I worked for Steve Madden. They were at the time it was shoes. And Steve Madden actually had just gone to jail. Yeah, so, so Steve Madden, if you've watched Wolf of Wall Street, had some practices that were not uh, not right with embezzling money. Oh. This is around 2006. So this is back when, yeah, em embezzling money and, and businesses, that was the, the big conversation. So I started working there. And so Steve Madden was a was a cool company. They had all those like those women with the big heads and the cool shoes, and it was kind of fun. But when I started, the company was kind of in shambles because he had just gone to jail. They didn't know what it meant. He was the founder. He was the face of it. And I learned quickly the fashion industry and like what how design is graphic design is perceived in, in that in the in that that industry. And it wasn't quite what I what I wanted. So then I moved on to a small advertising agency. It was uh, somebody who had left. He was a creative director, had left a big agency to start his own. And I ended up being like his right-hand person. Like I helped him with anything. And we sat in a small, like a WeWork. I mean, that mm. wasn't, a th it wasn't a thing back then, but it was just all these little studios of people kind of like starting out. It was in Union Square. And I quickly learned again that I don't like to be alone. So it was just him and I, and we had some freelancers, but I didn't have like a community of people. And I was like, well, I need to find, I need to find my, my people. So then I uh, got a job at a, a design studio up in Connecticut, 
I moved up uh, to actually Yonkers and I was in this really cool design studio. There was about 10 of us and it was just all designers. And we had two founders who, um, so at this point I was like 26, mm-hmm. who I thought were so much older and wiser. It turns out they were like in their early to mid thirties. Like now I'm like, <laughs> what? But there was no like strategy or accounts or account directors, or it was just a whole bunch of young young people, young designers, um, just pump and work out. And I was there for about three and a half, three and a half years. Uh, and that was really pivotal in just like, not, I actually didn't really get to talk about design. I just got to, I had to do it. And I realized I need, I needed that. Like I kept being like, I'm going to keep talking about it, inspiring people and getting everyone to like love design. But I actually just needed the experience to do design. I love hearing all of those plot points on your map because it sounds like you got a tour through the fashion industry and found that maybe it wasn't driving a kind of purpose that you felt aligned with. Yes. Then you, you know, worked with that founder and found it was too individual. There wasn't enough community for you. And then you went to the third place, the studio in Connecticut, and you got the practice of just pumping out work, like the very sort of rigorous, like, here's how you execute on a deadline and here's how you get in a rhythm of developing ideas really fast, getting your vernacular down, shorthand, and then pumping out work, which is a very helpful skill to have. Yes. Um, but more than anything, it also sounds like you learned a lot about what you do and don't want. Absolutely. Yeah. So when I was at that design studio, I feel like just getting the experience of like, here's your project, you have a deadline, like you just got to, you just got to hit it. Again, it was an important experience for me to say, what is as a creative individual, again, if we, for me, like creativity and design, when you go into design, it's now, okay, here's a set of parameters. How do you use your, how do you solve this challenge creatively, but within these set of parameters? I feel like it forced me to become nimble enough and know what is important as uh, a culture and an environment and what helps fuel my own creativity because there's very easy burnout. You know, we would be there because, again, we were a bunch of young designers just sitting in like, I always call it like a pit, but we were all sitting there. And like, we'd be there until like 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And you'd realize you can't keep doing that over and over again. So it's like, how do you sustain your own inputs to be able to output all that creativity, which has definitely shaped how I I think about, you know, where I am now at Thought Matter and, and how to foster a culture that allows for people to refuel, but then also feel like they're, they're doing something that's bigger than themselves and that they're doing work that has purpose. Work that has purpose and fostering a culture seem like maybe your two main tent poles. Yeah, yeah. So you've got all this experience that helped you define those for yourself. You go back to school at SVA, and at this point, are you driven because you you kind of have like this very defined direction? So I, as I mentioned before, the, the design studio was up in Connecticut, in South Norwalk, Connecticut. So I drove every day from Yonkers to... Uh, South Norwalk. So it was probably uh, about an hour. And then I would take the Merritt uh, Merritt Parkway that sometimes if there's an accident, you would be there for like three hours. Mm. And so I needed, I would talk to my, I actually talked to my mother. That's probably like my, my big thing, both going there and coming back. We just like talk on the phone. But then I realized I needed something else to do. And so these were early, early days of podcasts, 2000. 
seven. I don't know. Anyway, mm-hmm. It was early mm-hmm. days of podcasts. It wasn't like now it's everybody's podcast, podcast, podcast. But I learned about Debbie Millman's Design Matters podcast. And that mm-hmm. was in the early years of, of her doing that podcast. It's now in its 15th year. And I listened to her podcast religiously and I would listen to them over and over again. And at the time, Debbie would open her podcast with a creative essay that uh, aligned with the, the person she was interviewing. And I remember like dissecting those creative essays and being like, well, this is like so interesting. Here is this woman who is in the design uh, field. I imagine she was doing like important things, des- redesigning Burger King and all these different things that she was doing. But I was like, here she has her job doing graphic design, but she is so fascinated and interested about what makes creative people tick. And I was like, "That well, this is everything. Here's a, here's what I want to be doing. Like, how can I get to know her? And, and it just so happened. I don't know. I also read ad week and ad age and all these publications religiously. And there was a ad for a new master's program called a, a master's in branding. And it was at the school of visual arts and it was going to be chaired by Debbie Millman. Uh, and I remember going home to Mike at the time we were we were dating, we weren't married yet. And I was like, this is what I need to do with my life. I need to join this this master's program. It's at SVA, which I've always dreamt about going to. And like, this is it. And I remember he was like, so you don't know anything about it. It doesn't, it hasn't, like it has doesn't have alumni. Like it's, you know, most people say when you go into a master's program, like you do it for, you know, the network. Uh, and I was like, it doesn't matter. This is what I want to do. And I spent probably six months putting together an application that I was, I was trying to prove to this mysterious, wonderful Debbie Millman that I understood branding so that I could get into a program to learn about branding. Mm-hmm. And it's a little uh, cart the, before the horse. <laughs> I know, oh my God, a hundred percent. Like I remember the, the research I did, I researched all the professors that they had said were going to be in the program. Like in many ways, I feel like I, I took the program before I even took the program, but I was determined uh-huh. and then I got in Yay. Michael told me that he was nervous the day that the the envelope came from SVA in the mail because he was like, this is either the end of our relationship or (laughs) the beginning of, uh, you know, something amazing. So I went sight unseen. I hadn't even gone to the open house because I don't know. Because you my were just friend. stalking Debbie Millman. Oh, I was 100% stalking Debbie. A thousand percent. Um, you know, and again, I signed all these like big checks so I could go. I like got myself stu- big student loans. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. And I was like, this is it. And so the first day when I go, it was, a, it was like a reception for the, the new students. And I completely fangirled Debbie Millman, completely embarrassed myself. I was like asking her all these like random inside questions about design matters. There was this guy named uh, Gregory who would call in. I was like obsessed with who Gregory was. And like, <laughs> she just looked at me like, oh God. And I remember going home to Mike. I was like, so I think I might, she might kick me out. <laughs> but it was good. But that, I mean, it completely changed my life. And so I, it was nine months. Um, this is before I had kids. We always joked that uh, it's the longest nine months uh, in anybody's life going through a really intense graduate program. Then I had kids and I was like, well, yeah, I guess I, I guess that was intense. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was unbelievable. I mean, one of the things that now I, I you know, Debbie is a wonderful mentor and uh, is somebody that I, I talk to. But I remember saying to her uh, actually just recently that, uh, what were they thinking? Because it was the first year. She's like, oh, you guys were 100% the guinea pig. We didn't know what we didn't know. And, you know, they never, the, the faculty, founding faculty had never done a program like this before. And so it's incredible to see what they've done with it over the past 10 years. 
And do you feel some sort of pride at being one of the initial class? Because in many ways, obviously, they knew what they were doing, but they maybe hadn't run the program before. And you had done your research, and you knew you wanted to study with Debbie Millman. So you were kind of all in for that anyway. But in many ways, you guys made that program together because your feedback, I'm sure, helped them shape it. I think I was in many ways built to be in that first year because I was open to, you know, what are we doing and how are we doing? Oh, we're going to write a book today. Let's definitely write. That sounds great, Debbie. Like, how can we all help you write this branding Bible? I think it's funny in the first couple of years after I had graduated, uh, you know, there'd be um, potential students that would want to talk to alumni. And so, I, you know, the, the program would, would send out notes like, oh, Jesse, can you talk to this person who wants to apply? Uh, and I remember I would get on the calls with these these young people who are like, I, I want to go into this program. Like, how did you know you wanted to do it? What was the network like? How did you know you were going to get a job? How did you know? All, like, they'd ask me all these questions and I'd be like, I didn't. There was no answers to any of that. I just did it because I knew it's exactly where I was meant to be. And I knew I wanted to learn about branding and what the capacity for, you know, the practice of branding could be. I feel like now they don't send anybody my way because I'm like, I don't have anything. If you're asking that many questions, you probably shouldn't go. <laughs> well, they need some sort of guarantee. But like the the thing about creativity is you kind of have to make your own guarantee. Yes. No, nobody's going to hand it to you. You've got to design it and then work your way there towards it. Absolutely. So tell me about Thought Matter now as the managing director, and you've been with the founder for, you said, four plus years, and you're doing work worth doing and fostering a culture and building a community, all things that have your name written all over them. As I, I said before, I feel like I'm I'm at Thought Matter with a mix of opportunity, luck, and passion. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> For me, everything that I've, you know, probably from when I was I was a, a, a little girl with my mom telling me, you can do anything you want to do, all the way up through, I worked at uh, or worked with some large uh, consumer packaged goods companies that I feel like was always my dream, like to apply design thinking to these large conglomerates and all the things in between. I feel like all of those experiences and all of those opportunities have led me here to Thought Matter to be able to apply what, again, what does a branding and design studio look like in the third decade of the 21st century? I like to talk that I I, I do not play the lottery because I always say that I've already won the lottery. Um, <laughs> I feel like I continually win the lottery. Like, I don't know, I have gotten a chance to get to know our founder, Tom Jaffe, and he is incredible in the amount of trust that he has put in what I think a branding and design studio should look like. He's put a tremendous amount of trust in what I think the industry needs. He's put a tremendous amount of trust in uh, where I think a design studio can push the envelope and challenge what it means to be a creative. And it's been incredible. Like I said, incredible. It's been a, it's been a journey. Um, he hates when I use the word journey. So I threw that in there. Um, <laughs> but it really started when I... First got the job at Thought Matter. The creative director at the time was actually looking for a strategy director. And he and I met for coffee. And he was like, we're looking for someone who has consumer packaged goods experience that can help us hit the ground running, doing strategy uh, with the likes of uh, Colgate Palmolive, Procter & Gamble, Kimberly Clark, Unilever. And I had actually worked with... Um, many of them in my uh, last uh, past roles. And so I was like, I am built for this, I, but I want to be a consultant. So like, let's do it for six months. 
I did learn though that I'm a horrible interviewee because I didn't ask enough questions because I was like, yep, yeah, sign me up. Let's go. I, you know, quit my job, <laughs> ready to uh, hit the ground running. I got to Thought Matter and I was like, okay, so what's our first project? And they're like, well, we don't know. And I was like, what, what do you mean you don't know? And they're like, well, can you, can you help us get jobs with Procter and Gamble and Kimberly Clark and Goldgate Palm? And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I remember being like, well, if you don't have the clients currently in house, like, why are you pursuing that work? And the creative director at the time was like, well, that's what branding is. You should go and talk with Tom, go have dinner with him. Cause that's what he's, he wants to build this branding studio. So I did just that. I was like, let's go to dinner. I got to get to meet or know Tom. And he was like, well, I, in many ways taken on this branding and design studio, his late wife had had a studio for about 15 years she passed away and he actually got involved in the studio to kind of help those that were part of the studio find new opportunities. But he found himself really enjoying coming to a design studio every day. Uh, his background is in investigative journalism and he's a, an art collector uh, and has always kind of surrounded himself with creativity. And I think he realized that, wait a second, I'm, I'm now with these creative directors and these writers and these strategists and I want to continue to to move this forward. And so he uh, rebranded to, to Thought Matter. And he had been doing that for about a year. So when him and I had that dinner, I was like, okay, this sounds amazing. Like, I'm so excited that you are finding like this fourth career, you're interested in branding and design. But again, why do you want to pursue work with these large conglomerates? Is there like a particular reason? And he was like, well, that's what brands are. Brands are, and you know, he rattled off probably what you see in like the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um and I said, okay, well, what about, you know, these, this group of, of creative individuals that you've assembled? Like, why do you want them to apply it to this, these particular, what you're considering brands? And he's like, well, what else is there? And so when I, we started talking about some of his personal interests, he again is an art collector and he is a huge advocate of uh, art in schools and education. Selling a little? or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, 
Even his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. in uh, understanding the role of museums today and understanding mm. the role of cultural institutions are and that's when it was in, in his like private life those are things that he was interested in. and I was like well that's what we should be doing like that's where we should be putting all of our energies and efforts because these are uh, the areas that uh, nobody wants to talk about how branding can help further those missions everyone thinks that branding is this dirty word because of these large, you know, many ways, consumer packaged good companies uh, using 
quote unquote marketing and branding. Uh, no one's saying, okay, well, how do we think about branding for a nonprofit? Everyone's always like, oh, well, nonprofits don't want to make any money. And that couldn't be further from the truth because these organizations need to make money in order to further the work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. So why not apply the principles of marketing, of branding, of design, and actually help these organizations realize that they could be doing even more? And so I remember Tom being like, that's great, but like, can you build a business around that? And I was like, Yes. And then I went home to Mike, my, my husband, and I was like, uh-huh. so I told him we could definitely build a business around like nonprofits and cultural institutions and education and fine artists. And what do you think? And he was like, what? Why would you say that? Like, <laughs> There's nobody there. Like, how are you going to make money? I was like, I don't know. I'm determined to. And, and this is what drives me today. I am determined to prove that good work can be valued and can actually help foster and uh, move organizations forward to make a larger impact. And that is making, that is showing the value of that work that is making money, that's bringing money in, that's fundraising. I mean, money can't be a, a this like bad word around the value of design for these organizations. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. And I think that even nonprofits need a certain sort of economic viability and their currency is in impact. And if you can design in a way that helps them have more impact, then all of their fundraising efforts and everything that drives what they're doing gets greased up and lubricated with ease because they are able to demonstrate the impact. Yes. It's incredibly important, and money's not a dirty word, but it's it's weird. Marketing sort of can be a dirty word if it's if it's used just to sell more product to people who don't need that product. Right? Then it can be kind of evil. But if it's used to help educate people on causes or missions or access to certain things that they might not even know they they have access to that might benefit them, it can be an incredibly powerful tool. Absolutely. And I think that that I think there needs to be more conversations again around because I feel like creative individuals, whether you're a graphic designer, or you consider yourself a writer or a strategist, or you are understanding the, the components of what branding, the tenets of branding, when you take those skills and that thinking for organizations that they, they need to figure out how do you uh, get more people to understand what it is that they're uh, offering, to be able to give more money, to be able to understand what, again, that impact is. I just think it, it's important. And working in, again, consumer packaged goods, I feel like that's like the OG branding. There's the, the, the mantra of sell more things to more people for more money more often. Mm. And, you know, that's just the way brands have, have operated because they want to be able to do more. But I think if you took that same thinking, because again, it can count, it can sound kind of, e- I don't know, evil is the right word, but it can seem kind of selfish or, or very um, opportunistic. But if you take that same thinking and you apply it to organizations that really do need to get more people to buy into it, to be able to give back and to do things more often, like you can actually make an impact and actually start to help an an organization realize their full potential. I'm totally with you. And I wonder, okay, so your husband comes from the painting department at Pratt, and I know you come from branding and advertising and communications design, but designing for impact 
it seems to me like that might be such a crafty cocktail of design parameters and design thinking plus a fair amount of like just humanity and yes. sensitivity and empathy and things that are the essence of expression and what we might think of as fine art. But I'm wondering what your take on it is. Like what is design for impact look like and feel like to you? That is something that I think about every day. Like I feel like in, and I try to inspire everybody here at Thought Matter, we're about 20 people every day to think about what does it mean to design with impact? Uh, what does it mean to think about, again, art as this, as, as Mike would say, as acting on impulse, but thinking about design that has parameters and then thinking about branding, which is about manufacturing meaning. It's like, how do you take all of that? and start to say what is important to just that overall creativity and, and what it means in the world. Maybe you could talk us through your, your process with some of the major projects you've worked on so that we're illustrating this in sort of real terms, because I know you've worked on some really fascinating things, like the redesign of the U.S. Constitution, which, holy moly. Yeah, absolutely. I think that in the Constitution is a, is a perfect project that combines, again, this idea of like, what is art acting on impulse? What is design, designing with a set of parameters? And what is branding, which is creating meaning? We had at all studio hands on deck around right after the election. Tom told us where we are a studio full of, I hate the word millennials, but we're our studio mostly of millennials. We've rebranded to millennials, but, um, <laughs> and he was like, you young people need to stop complaining and realize that you have so much power. You guys are, are smart. You're, you're always thinking about new ideas. Like, how do you apply that to making a difference to what you're all complaining about? Stop reading. New York Times and start thinking about what you can do. And so we had a all studio conversation to say, how do we engage in the, the conversation that's happening right now politically? And uh, somebody had said, and this was 2017, mm -hmm. uh, the, the president keeps talking about the constitution, but everyone keeps saying he hasn't read it. And so I, I was having a conversation with Mike and I was telling him about this and he's like, well, has anyone in your studio read it? And I was like, well, oh, yeah, good, good, good question, Mike. So <laughs> I went, uh, came back to the studio the next day and on Amazon ordered, I don't know, probably 15 versions of the constitution, brought them in. I was like, has anyone read this? And of course, as a, a group of designers, everyone was like, well, this one's ugly. This one you can't read. This one's too small. This one's like, what kind of type are they using? This one's in Comic Sans. This one's in time. You know, there's all these like design nuanced conversations that were like shitting all over these 15 constitutions that we got off Amazon. And I was like, yeah, well, that's what we're going to do. We need to redesign this. Like if we are questioning or if everybody's questioning whether or not our president has read the Constitution, like, and we can't even say that we've read it, there's nothing inspiring. Like what, how do we make this more accessible? Like if we're always talking about design's ability uh, to make things accessible and make things um, inclusive and make things desirable, like why don't we actually just redesign this? And so Tom was like, that is so crazy that I love it. Let's do it. Then I, we were like, okay, now what? Uh, so uh, a few of us at our, our account team were like, well, we need to fund it, I guess. Like, how do we get people excited about it? Somebody I went to Pratt with uh, was teaching a course at Pratt around Kickstarter. Um, so I invited him in. I was like, can you just tell us about Kickstarter? Like, what is this? How do we get money? And his first comment to us was that most people assumed that Kickstarter, as it's a crowd 
funding tool. Everyone focuses on funding. And he was like, but a very important aspect of crowdfunding is the crowd part of it, is that you get people to understand what you're doing, the product you're making, why you're, you're putting it out there. And so we spent the next, we used our own design process that we do with our clients, um, thinking through how we could create a campaign to redesign the constitution. And so we started probably in the springtime and we said, we're going to launch the Kickstarter on July 4th. And we're going to run it through the summer and that our goal is to print our redesigned constitutions by the anniversary of the, I think it's the signing of the constitution in September. And it seemed like, let's do it. Uh, and it was great. We had so much interest and so many people were fascinated and we were like, okay, well, who is this really for? And we realized like once we, we were able to get the money to print it, uh, that we wanted to give it to young people. We felt that people, uh, students, uh, especially I think it's juniors, they go through the civics education in the, the public school system. We were like, okay, if they're learning about our own civics uh, and they're having this conversation, they probably are looking at those really awful constitutions we got on Amazon. So let's send them. Um, so we partnered with a nonprofit called Constitutional Sources Project, Consource for short, uh, that works in schools to further civic education. And we were able to print and donate 3,000 copies of our constitution, and they helped distribute it across the country. And it kind of took off from there because then we're like, well, we don't want to stop. What else can we do? Um, and it turned into um, a poster show we did at the Cooper Union. It turned into uh, a traveling show that we did with a couple of private schools. It, it kept, kept going, and we've had... Uh, big uh, companies approach us to say, well, how can we take on this constitution? And I actually was a little bit of the, I had to do a little timeout because I was like, well, we are not the constitution design agency. <laughs> so right. we need to put a, we need to figure out like what, and what makes sense for us. And like, we did this, like, how can we now take the same thinking and do it with more clients? And how can we, again, take that same thinking and designing for impact and, think about what the next evolution of the project is. So that was in 2017 and it was amazing. And that to me was a perfect example, again, of bringing people together saying, okay, how do we use our collective agency and our collective thinking to apply these solutions to getting people to engage? And again, it's mm -hmm. like, we wanted to be a nonpartisan activity because we mm -hmm. didn't, like, we didn't, we didn't touch the text of the constitution. We we're like, it's not up to like, we're not going to get into the Supreme court rulings and we're not going to get into what in uh, opinions based on, on the text of the constitution. We took the constitution text as is and just designed it so that people would want to pick it up and open it and look at it and talk about it. Mm -hmm. To make it more inviting, more accessible, and to remind people that this is the document that belongs to you. Like, this is what governs our country, and this country is yours. This needs to be accessible to you, and you need to feel like it's approachable. Yes, ex exactly. And so we were, again, inspired. I think there was, um, we talked to a constitutional law expert, because, again, as designers, you're like, I want to do, like, stakeholder interviews with as many people as possible and, like, really understand what this is. And somebody we spoke to said... The most important lesson that they teach in their classes, I think they were at um, NYU Law School, is that the Constitution is a living, breathing document, and unless you use it, you lose it. And we were like, oh, my, that's, like, so profound. Like, right, like, if you don't understand that this was written for us and 
we as individuals are not engaging in dialogue around it and questioning our local representatives and government and thinking about the larger conversations, then yeah, that you, you will lose those constitutional rights. I mean, and we're seeing that now, you know, unfortunately with this administration and some of the policies they have, there are individuals who don't realize what their constitutional rights are and they're starting to lose them. Oh, that's a sad note to end that conversation on. <laughs> but it's important. I, w- I wanted to ask you before we move on, how do you measure impact? Like clearly this got a lot of great feedback and it sort of snowballed. But were you able to in any way gauge how much more engagement you were able to create with the Constitution? We talk about this a lot and I don't have a I don't have a, a good succinct answer of like how you measure impact. But I feel like as a studio, what we talk about impact is how do you get more people to do more things more often that feel like they understand what their role could be in it. And I feel Mm -hmm. like when we look at the 2017, we called it For the People Project. When we look at what we were able to accomplish, we were able to inspire this this nonprofit that's already doing work, this Constitutional Sources Project, Consource for short, already doing work in the civic engagement space. But we got them to now think about design's role in the work that they're doing. And they actually collaborated with us for a poster show at the Cooper Union. And as a nonprofit organization, they never would have uh, thought to do something like that, uh, that really engages artists and graphic designers to think about this civic education across this country. And so I feel like we measure the impact of this, this nonprofit now saw, and they continue to see opportunities that creativity can help further their mission. I feel like we touched um, 10 graphic designers in the industry. So we had Milton Glazer, we had Adele Rodriguez, we had Seymour Quast, we had Jessica Hish, we had all these luminaries in the design world. When we emailed them and said, hey, we want to do a, uh, a poster show, we want you to design a poster uh, interpreting one of the amendments, would you you know, want to participate? They all said yes. Mm. And they all said, we want to, we want to be able to use our craft and we want to be able to use our platform and we want to be able to contribute to a show like this. Uh, and again, that would, that impacted each of those individual designers. And, you know, we are the, the studio and myself are now, uh, close, uh, we'll say friends, uh, friends in studio with Adele Rodriguez and like learning about the, the work that he's doing and putting out there. Uh, as a Cuban American illustrator. And he's always saying, you know, that project you guys did with the constitution, like it, I always, it always sticks with me. Like that's so important that I, I should be talking about what it means to have uh, freedom of speech and what it means to my work. And so that to me is like another aspect of just, again, impact of people that we asked to be a part of it and they're continuing to think about it. I think we also talk about the impact it made that we were able to donate 3000 constitutions. A thousand of them went to Staten Island my mom is actually from Staten Island and mm. we talk a lot about the the fifth borough that everyone kind of forgets. And it is a very historically Republican leaning borough. And we sat, we went into the borough president's office there and talked to their deputy borough president. And he was like, this isn't some like liberal design conversation you're having. And we're like, no, here's this constitution. And we made it more just accessible. And he was like, great, I want to put you in touch with the head of uh, education on Staten Island. And she was so excited to take on these constitutions and, and have them throughout the schools on Staten Island. And again, that to me is a, is a big impact that here we are 
talking about what, again, I know it's um, sort of cliche to say design kind of sits in its own little liberal bubble and we're always just thinking about what that looks like. But it, we really sort of bridged that gap of saying, no, this is design can serve a purpose to get people to have and engage in a conversation. And it's not uh, about one party or the other. Um, so that to me is impact. So I feel like looking at all the different aspects and people that we touched and how they took on talking about the work that we were doing uh, is important. And again, I know people always want like these big statistics, but yeah, no, it can't be measured in statistics. But you did a good job of illustrating that not only were people touched, but people who are in positions to touch other people were touched. So there's ex- exponential yes. Ooh, power like there. Also, you carved paths that needed to be carved so that other people can walk them. Now there is a set path and it's easy to see. You demonstrated the value of design to people who sort of needed to know that they could harness that for their own purposes. And you built bridges. Like that, all of that is such powerful stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. I like how you summarize that. <laughs> So I have to ask you, like, personally, on your own existential level, you you said, you know, you don't play the lottery because you already won it, but you're doing really heavy work. I mean, it's very important work. And I, I feel goosebumps because I can I can feel how fulfilling it is for you. I guess I want to know, like, are there days where you just feel flattened because things seem too daunting or disheartening? And if so, like, what do you do for yourself personally to get your hope and optimism back? And I think that's a, that's a great question and something that I don't constantly think about. But I do know that I always try to like ask people, um, you know, what could I be doing better? Like, what do you think of me as a leader? Like, I'm always fascinated by all those questions. I always want to like sign up for leadership assessments and, and, and learn more. And whenever I've done them, and again, it's always great to give constructive feedback. I feel like over the course of my career, I always am told that my optimistic nature always continues to inspire. And there are times, obviously, like when someone's too optimistic, you're like, okay, like settle down. Um, but I've like, I had to sort of sit down with myself recently and say, okay, if people always say like, you are constantly trying to inspire, you always have energy, you're always optimistic, you're always upbeat. Like, I, I actually had to sit and say, well, is that actually true? And if it is true, like, why is that? Like, why don't I ever sit here and be like, I have no hope. There's no <laughs> way forward. And I was talking to, uh, we, I have a really wonderful uh, business consultant that is amazing. Her and I always go back and forth. And she was like, well, in many ways, your whole story is about being surrounded by hope. Like, so it seems like you just draw from that. And I was like, wait, time out. Let's like, let's like unpack that. What does that mean? And I think that that is really true. Like, I, I feel like I have uh, seen hope um, hope sort of on both ends of a spectrum that I have. And as I mentioned, I was adopted. I had a biological mother who very much said, I have hope for the future for this, this, this young person I'm bringing into the world. And she put me up for adoption. And I want to imagine that again, she hoped a better, a better life for me. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I have my mom who never gave up hope that she could have a child and be able to nurture that child and 
teach them and, and, and help them become a really wonderful person. And she tells me these stories now, again, she's in her mid seventies and I feel like she wants to talk about like what, you know, what she went through. And I guess for me, I always say to myself, like here, I have these two women that bookend what's happening in my life and they never gave up hope. Like, why would I give up hope? And you said before, I don't play the lottery because I did win the lottery, but I feel like I constantly seek how to show and give back to the universe that like I've been given these these wonderful gifts and these two women who believed in me in different ways. Like how do I now pay that forward? How do I think about what my role is? And again, I'm not designing every day, but I can inspire designers every day to think about what they can give back and what they can put out into the world and what they can contribute in our own small way, uh, make a big difference. I love it. I'm getting drunk off your optimism, and it feels really good. <laughs> See, why, I, why am I so optimistic? <laughs> and why am and actually my um, Michael always says to me, he's like, you do realize that most people can't operate all the time at your level. Like you need to. <laughs> but it seems like that's why you're in a great position because as the team leader, as fostering a culture, you're the person people look to when their optimism is flagging. Yeah, they need to believe in something that you already believe in. Yeah, and I think it helps that again. I don't. I don't like to be alone. I like to talk to people all the time, <laughs> and that's really where I get a lot of my energy. Is also from just people, and again, hearing their stories and what are they thinking and what do they want. I feel like most people who know me uh, know they shouldn't stay out out with me after three drinks because I end up like, well, what do you want to do in five to ten years? What do you think you want to pursue? <laughs> like, what is this life dream? And I have a really wonderful client services director who will be like, okay you young designers going out with Jesse, like operate your own risk because she will start asking you like what it is and how you want to change the world. Well, so let me ask you that question. What is the big goal? Do you have a illustrated vivid picture in your head of how you want to change the world? Early on, I don't remember when, but I heard a design leader uh, once say that they exist to build a justifiable case for creativity in the world. And it's always like stuck with me because I'm like, man, yeah, that's what we like as creative individuals, people who went to art school, people who probably have a lot of student loans at art school. <laughs> what are we trying to do? And again, you know, you try to get a job, whatever, um, industrial design, fashion, communication, design, advertising, painting, galleries, gear, like all the different roles that are traditionally um, meant for someone who has a, a, fine, a fine arts education. But what are we re all really trying to do? And I really think that there is this really important question about like, why is creativity so important in the world? And how do you build that justifiable case, whether it be in business through design thinking, or whether it be through fine arts, through um, galleries and what's being shown, or whether it's through graphic design and, and what's being put out into the world and how people are interacting with it. It's so important. I feel like it's, it's even more important than ever. Like we are now the arts and creativity and free thinking and intuition and these really big concepts are being questioned, right? Like it's like, well, what what is the quantifiable measure of, of design or what is uh, it mean to be creating in America today? Like I just feel that we all should be trying to push push the boundaries and challenging what it means to be creative because this is how we all start to see and absorb the world. And I feel like our 
Now I'm going to go off on like a soapbox. But anyway, I forgot what the original. (laughs) I was asking about your big goal, but I'm listening and I'm like, yes, because creativity is exercising your creativity is participating in the evolution of humanity. If there was no creativity, there would be no change or growth. Absolutely. Everything would stay the same. So if you don't exercise your creativity, you're letting other people exercise theirs and you're just at the whim. But the only way these complex challenges are going to get thought about thoughtfully is if we engage creatively. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. You had sent a question I thought was interesting and you had asked, how do you serve as better mentors in the industry. Uh, and again, building on this idea that creativity is so important and again, building a justifiable case for creativity and fostering a culture of creativity and uh, really encouraging people to uh, understand their capacity for creativity. I really think that what I would love to see more of in this industry and especially the design and branding industry is generosity is how do you, become more generous with your ideas? How do you put those ideas out there, again, that are are selfless, uh, that help to, again, promote how to take on, especially these large challenges we're starting to see. I mean, think about climate change, immigration, you know, just civic engagement and and participation and, and the things that we're doing. How do you, how do we as individuals be more generous with those ideas to help solve those issues as opposed to it being ego driven or as opposed to it being like, I need to be the most creative person that there is to prove my, my worth. It's like, it's not about you. It's about what your ideas do to move people forward. Absolutely. And even so much of the design culture by sort of necessity is shrouded in secrecy until the project or a campaign or product is launched. The The creative community is even sort of cut off from each other because they can't legally talk about their projects openly. And, right. you know, I don't know how to change that, but I do think generosity is is one of the, the keys. Yeah. Um, and I just think, again, seeing more of it, and I will give credit to uh, our founder, Tom, who it didn't grow. I mean, he didn't grow up and he didn't work in the, the, the graphic design industry or the, the branding industry. In many ways, he always considers himself an outlier. But of all the different people I've met, I've been, again, tremendously lucky and have had so many opportunities to meet uh, amazing, talented, wonderful designers in the industry and practitioners and, and people who do this for a living. Um, and they all again, are incredible and shaped who I am. But I actually have found somebody like Tom who doesn't know what he doesn't know and he doesn't buy into like, oh, this is how it's done or this is how, you know, historically we should be thinking about design. He brings a a freshness to what creative individuals can contribute to both uh, themselves, you know, their own personal pursuits, a company, an industry, and the, in society at large. And for me, it's been so refreshing working with him because there's times where I'm like, well, what about this? What about this? And he'll always say, well, is that just because you've been conditioned to think that way? Because that's what the industry thinks that we should be doing. Or is it truly moving our ability to be creative and impact the world forward? And I'm always like, yeah, let me, oh. let me like go back and think about it. That's amazing. Um, and he is so generous in that way because he is like, well, you know, think about what that means for, for somebody else. Um, 
Yeah. yeah, I just think that there, we need more of that. And, you know, at, at Thought Matter, we're always talking about the values that drive us and, and Tom and I together put them in place. And, you know, the first one is curiosity. And I think curiosity is creativity. Uh, the second is thoughtfulness, uh, you know, thought matter, <laughs> but putting a, a level of, of, of thinking and, and thoughtfulness in what you do. And the third is generosity. And we always constantly ask ourselves that we constantly ask ourselves like, okay, is this, are we doing this for ourselves? Or are we doing this to be able to give back? It's something that is, is a part of our work. And it's also a part of how we put this, the staff together. How do we be generous in, in our diversity of perspectives? Um, and for me, those three things are, are so important. And I know you asked me probably seven questions ago about what I hope to see for myself. And I really hope to continue to build an agency around those three values and really see where it takes us as we move into, we're about to move into a hot political season, mm-hmm. uh, as well as, uh, again, what's going to happen in this third decade of the 21st century uh, and what is the role of creativity and what are the roles of designers and where do we have the most potential for impact? Wow. Well, I am cheering you on from over here. Let me tell you. (laughs) Do you have a new project you want to let our listeners know about that will be out soon or that is out that they can look up? Yeah. So... For the People Project has now become For the People. We dropped the word project, which again, like as uh, strategists and designers, you're always like, how do we put this in a framework? But we had a big conversation about in 2017, it was very much about what are the rules and how do we understand them? So that made sense. We were like, let's take the constitution and redesign it. I feel like as we move into 20 or now that we're in 2020 and we're seeing everything that's heating up in this political season, I feel like everyone's just trying to throw the rule book out. So we're like, okay, well, now how do we engage? How do we, if our whole purpose back in 2017 was how to help uh, make this document accessible, what does it mean now? Like so much has happened in the last three years. And so we started thinking about how if the Constitution, if you don't use it, you lose it. And a lot of what makes the Constitution the Constitution is the interpretation of the Constitution, we said, how do we build on that? And so we have created a project called For the People, a docu-series. We are uh, interviewing 10 creative interpreters, people who in their own practice as creatives uh, are interpreting you know, what's happening. And we are talking to them about the Constitution. How has the Constitution impacted their work? How do they think about uh, the role of their own rights as, a, as creatives to continue their work? Uh, and we want to hopefully engage uh, a larger conversation around people's own personal participation in uh, their own rights. Because uh, a lot of times, the constitu- if you read the Constitution, it is actually very dry. There's all these words. It's all legalese. And anytime people talk about like Supreme Court rulings, it's always sort of sh- sh- uh, shrouded in these big, big words. And if you're not uh, a lawyer or somebody who is uh, engaged in that, you feel like oh, that has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. But it has everything to do with you. So we want to we wanted to create this docu-series so people could watch these three-minute videos of these creative interpreters talking about the Constitution so people could feel like, well, yeah, you know what? This does impact my daily life, and this does 
inspire me to feel like I can talk about what this means for me. So we started with Adele Rodriguez. So as I mentioned, he's a become a friend of the firm. Um, and we interviewed him and it's up on forthepeopleproject.org. And he talks about what it means to be Cuban American, what it means to be an illustrator, what it means freedom of speech, and really thinking about how he, as an interpreter, as an illustrator, uh, is impacted. And then we had a second episode with uh, an individual named Mark Cross, who uh, has a tattoo uh, parlor, I don't know if that's the right word, but um, in Williamsburg and is part of an arts collective called Mud Guts. And he's talking about what the Constitution means in his work within communities. You know, he questions the the purpose of the Constitution, which is just as important. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a third episode with someone in the culinary arts. Uh, And again, food couldn't be more political. Uh, And we're talking about how they are thinking about their role as, uh, you know, literal tastemakers in in a kitchen. So we will do 10 and we want to get more people, again, thinking about what what their role is and how they can interpret the Constitution and how they can feel that they are empowered to have these conversations. And you can be a chef, you can be a tattoo artist, you can be an illustrator, you also could be a legal scholar, but either way, you all have the important role to engage in this very large experiment called democracy. Wow. And that's at ForThePeopleProject.org. Yes. Where else can people look to find you on social media and the web and Thought Matter? Well, we're Thought Matter on Instagram, Twitter. We're like, a, you know, like all kinds of vowels are dropped because we didn't get Thought Matter at Thought Matter. So yes, definitely find us on Instagram. And as for me, um, again, I, I am on Instagram. I am Facebook, but I feel like all I do is post pictures about my kids. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jesse, for sharing your story, your personal mission, all of your thoughts about creativity. I'm so happy to have found a fellow champion of creativity in the world. Not that we're unique, but <laughs> but fight the fight, right? Yes. <laughs> It's been really wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening, everyone. To see images of Jesse's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go to cleverpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel inclined, if you like what you hear, and you want to rate and review us, it really does help us out. We also love it when you reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino, and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. <laughs>